0: I'm Eugene Kim, and I welcome you to On Death, the podcast where we talk about death through the four prompts. I am, before I die I want, when I die I want, and after I die I want. This week we sit down with John Foley. John is a 29-year-old athlete, brother, and lover. I met John the first few weeks of freshman year at Tufts University, over a decade ago, and we have been close friends ever since. During this conversation, we discuss his combative relationship with religion, the roast of his grandmother at her funeral, and why he is learning statistics on his commute to work. Before we talk more about John and this really great conversation that we have together, I want to talk about my uh, reflections, my weekly reflections on my medical school experience from the very first anatomy lab to now uh, awaiting interviews for residency applications for psychiatry programs. And um, you can find all of these reflections uh, from the re- that very first one to now at mnmwad.com. That's Mobility and Mindfulness Work of the Day, M-N-M-W-O-D dot C-O-M. Or you can type in EugeneH.Kim into your browser and it'll take you there anyway. Um, you can also find the collected Kindle uh, you know, e-books as well as uh, po- paperback collected editions uh, at Amazon if you search for Physician Education. Uh, It's a pretty cool uh, search engine optimization that way. And so uh, on September seventeenth, 2018, I published On Plastic Patient Populations. This week, I reflected on the plasticity of my pediatric patients. I've seen some cool stuff and participated in meaningful interactions. I wonder if this is what child psych is really like or if I've gotten a manicured view of the landscape. Then more recently, on the 23rd of September, 2018, I published on sunshine drawers. This week, with the equinox on the equinox, with the death of summer and the birth of fall, I begin building my sunshine drawer. I reflect on three patients that will leave me smiling through the dark times ahead. And again, type in EminemWad.com uh, or EugeneH.Kim into your browser and you'll find uh, all, all, the, all this goodness, all the, all the interviews and all of the reflections there. So back to John. John is a salesperson, a family person, a middle child of three, a son to an amazing mom and dad, a boyfriend to this incredible weightlifter, a doggy daddy, 29 years old, and engulfed in his current career. Before John dies, he wants to be able to establish a new home, stability, and establish some kind of legacy. When John dies, he wants people around him to be happy, After John dies, he wants whatever stability he was able to develop in his life to continue into the lives of friends and family. And in conclusion, John says, Something that was immediately apparent in thinking through the third prompt of When I Die I Want is that I haven't been thinking about my own mortality. And I joke with people about a little trip to the ER or some kind of medical thing that comes up. And I'm just like, oh no, it's okay, um, just getting older. And my computer actually died while I was reading the prompts, so you'll have to forgive me. That was, it's it, he he says something really brilliant there. So, uh, yeah, that John is a uh, as I mentioned earlier, John is. A long friend of mine. I've lived with him for a few years. Um, after we graduated from college, um, we 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 were on the same floor of uh, Miller Hall and Tufts University, and uh, we weren't really friends. We were just kind of like we knew each other. But uh, as as uh, we grew up essentially we became closer and closer and uh i call i still consider him one of my best friends to this day and um he is the first of my college buddies that i've really interviewed um i'm slowly digging into like these long-term friends because it's a very interesting practice of of uh sitting down with somebody that you've known for you know with john's case almost 11 years now and uh having this kind of a very structured conversation and interview it's a a very different way to interact with that person. And I really enjoyed it and I really reveled in the chance to be able to ask him some really pointed questions sometimes to really, um, you know, put on my psychiatrist hat and sort of see like, where, what, like, what, what, where's his level of understanding right now? Where can, where, where's he going to go? Um, you know, and I'm starting to really lean into reinterviewing people and, uh, I'm, Lined up some re interviews, you know, up, I think like two or three years after the first interviews for people. Uh, for one person, it's going to be like after he had a kid and, um, uh, you know, is, is on Team Dad for a couple of years now. And so that, I'm really excited for this interview with John Foley, not necessarily for this interview itself, but uh, for like to track his changes through the coming decades you know whenever he decides to get that house and settle down with morgan and uh you know really develop into uh what i who i who i know john will eventually uh, develop into so that's enough of me uh, waxing philosophic about this friendship uh, I hope that you have some water going. Uh, you that you have something lined up for this uh, to you know to do as you listen to this really great conversation, this long, wide-ranging conversation with John Foley on death. It is September 19th, 2018. I am sitting here in my Coopersburg home, and John Foley is sitting in his Boston, Massachusetts office. And we're going to be talking about death through the four prompts. John, what are the four prompts? Okay. Hi, Eugene. So the four prompts are I am,
1: before I die, I want, when I die, I want, and after I die, I want. Excellent. And how do you finish the first prompt, I am? So... I think that that is the most difficult prompt for me. Uh, When I think about what I am, it seems to the first word that comes to mind is career wise. Mm -hmm. So when I think about how to answer that, it would be, okay, I am a salesperson. I am a, um, and then the next part would just be, Let's start to flow from there into other areas. Mm-hmm. What I would like that to be is I want to be a family person. Mm-hmm. And when I think about like the tattoos that I've gotten on my body, when I think about what my geographic moves have been as of late, a lot of them have been around being more involved with family. Mm-hmm. And I think that I've done a really bad job of that. And there might be some underlying guilt there. But what I would want that to start shaping in the future is like, I am a middle child of three. I am a son to an amazing mom and dad. Um, I am a boyfriend to this incredible weightlifter and a doggy daddy. So, like, all, all of that to me is more family stuff versus the right now. When I think about I am, it is I am a. Salesperson, I am 29 years old. I am engulfed by my current career and I Mm -hmm. spend a lot of my waking moments thinking about either work right now or work in the future. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that I'm totally satisfied with thinking that and having that be my
0: mindset all of the time.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Okay, so we have a lot to dissect here. Uh, I think. an easy one, and it sounds like a, almost like a triggering topic for you is talking about the sales work. And we talked a little bit about it before the interview began, but I guess, um, what, okay, let's make it this easy. What do you like about, uh, being in sales and the career that you're in right now? So the
1: fun part of it is around meetings. So actually going out and making some kind of connection with another person one of the cool parts about it is that you are interacting with a lot of different people and Mm -hmm. by doing so it's basically just like maximum stranger exposure (laughs) that well so that can be cool right where Mm You get to hear a lot of different things from people's lives. A lot of the time that we spend together is not spent talking about business. Um, There's definitely a piece of that, but it is fun to be able to go out and learn about who these other people are, what their life stories are. There's a, a pretty massive sample from anywhere from people just starting out all the way up through executives and, you know, What was the path that led them there? Was this something that they're happy doing with their like that's actually one of my favorite questions to ask someone? And usually it's a little bit off-putting, or Mm -hmm. maybe just catching them off guard, is do you like what you're doing? And are you happy? Because the answers are all over the place. And there's a lot of people out there in the corporate world that while they are content are not happy. Mm -hmm. And so the fun part
3: is definitely meeting people. Um, developing relationships. And I think for the most part,
1: the sales culture is fun, although it's sort of twisted in a number of ways. And it's a gross generalization, but it's sort of a bro culture. Mm-hmm. in many organizations. And so some of the ones that I've been part of have had, you know, very much it's a reward for I don't know, less than admirable behavior. And that's, that. it starts to blur the line, I'm sure, into what the next question is of, I, mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but what do you not like about it? Yeah, yeah we can progress there. <laughs> so, so that's, and I, I think, um, so you and I were talking a little bit before the interview started about career moves and Mm -hmm. doing something different and not just doing it at a different company or a different geography, but doing something completely different in general. Back to what I was just saying when I was transitioning out about sales culture. And I remember a friend telling me a story, and this is not personal experience, so take it for what it is. But I remember a friend telling me a story when I, before I had actually gotten into sales, about one of his previous managers. And there was a project that they were working on in which the key contact that they needed a signature from his father passed away. Mm-hmm. And so my buddy was saying, you know, there's no way I'm going to call this guy right now. Like, That would be so insensitive. That would be really just terrible. And Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, you're just selling something. I understand that businesses need to keep moving because they do, but you are just selling something. Mm -hmm. And the response from the sales manager was go to the funeral and get the guy to sign the paper at the funeral. That, When I think about that, I think that's super dark. I'm sure there was some hyperbole there. But I also think that that is one really far extreme of where a lot of the behavior goes, which is do anything to get this done. And I don't like that. I think that you ruin relationships that way. I think that there's unnecessary pressure put on individuals that do bad things for their life. And when I think about when I don't want to do it and or what I don't like about it, a lot of it stems from that behavior, if that makes sense. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, like the Glenn Glenn, Glenn, Gary, Glenn Ross kind of like, oh, like that whole like sequence of like that. Yeah, yeah. and some of it's amusing. Some
1: of it is like that example that I was just sharing, like that just seems way over the line. Mm -hmm. And I think that especially in... Like one of the cool things, I've like, actually I blurred the line again. One of the cool things is a lot of the people that do this, when I got into sales originally, I thought it was uh, like a lot of nonsense that there wasn't necessarily a ton of strategy behind it. It was all relationships. It was taking people to lunch, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And what I realized is that it is actually quite the opposite at least in this company, like the company is awesome because these people are professionals and they are very crisp and clear at what they're doing. Mm -hmm. They are very well trained. That's cool to see that there is a more scientific approach to this. Mm -hmm. But again, then there's the layer of always be closing that Mm -hmm. (laughs) takes it down a darker path that is something that doesn't necessarily agree with me personality-wise.
0: Yeah. And I think that this kind of goes back to your, who who I, the John Foley that I have known for the past decade or so is that you are somebody that really revels in the relationships and, and meeting people and you have a very extroverted nature about you. And I can see how you can at the same time be drawn to sales because that is almost the foundation of sales, but also be repulsed by the culture that, um, takes advantage of those relationships or use them as capital rather than as the foundation for what you should be doing.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting comment too. Maybe just your rhetoric there, using it as capital. What That same guy that I was talking about that shared that story with me has in the past referenced exchanging human capital. So thinking about trust building and relationships, you could think about it as a bank or any other analogy, but essentially exchanging human capital for some kind of business deal mm-hmm. and what does that actually look like and what happens to a relationship once you've done that
0: mm-hmm. very good question and i think that's a very good reason why you um are hoping to get out of that field or at least yes. you know shimmy out of it yeah so um i think we dove good in the, into uh, dove well into that um, now I'm curious about, uh, I think the sequence was you in, in relation to your siblings, your your parents, and then your relationship with Morgan. So uh, let's dive into the siblings first. Uh, what does it, to you, what does it mean to be the middle child of three? Well, uh, that's, that's a loaded question. I'm sure it's
1: supposed to be. <laughs> so... I think that middle child comes with its own preconceived notions a lot of times where it's, you think about, oh, even in a joking sense, oh, you're the middle child. That explains a lot. And it's essentially the role of playing negotiator to try to make other people happy. And I think that just in all transparency, I spend a lot of effort trying to either Get people to like me or agree with me or get people to diffuse any kind of conflict. Mm-hmm. Just sort of that like straying away from conflict type thing. Mm-hmm. And that I think is pretty ingrained from being the middle child. And so what those the barriers on either end are is my older sister, she's about a year and a half older, and then there's my younger brother, who's about a year and a half younger. So mm-hmm. much planted right there in the middle um and it was an opportunity growing up definitely to be extremely close to both of them a lot of times individually in relationships so having a close one-on-one relationship with my sister and having a close one-on-one relationship with my brother too Mm -hmm. so i think i dropped the word guilt when i was talking about some of the family stuff and or what it is, and I don't know enough about psychology to actually dissect this, I should probably spend more time trying to figure this out. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of self-inflicted guilt or pressure or some other feeling like that of trying to be there or trying to diffuse some kind of familial conflict. And when I think about if it's a good use of energy or not, it often feels counterproductive. Although it does feel like something that I want for me personally, I don't know if that
0: sentence makes sense. I think there's, um, I mean, if the strategy worked as you were a child, it makes sense that you would continue that strategy going into adulthood. And whether or not that's an uh, uh, an adaptive behavior or a maladaptive behavior is a totally different question because. Um, we were talking again about, about your brother before the interview. And it seems like there's a strong current of like you taking responsibility and feeling it. Like when I asked you what's something you were proud of, you talked about your brother, not something that you have done. And I think there's a lot of like that internalization or, or making other people problem, other people's problems yours in in that maybe in that might be the whole middle child thing. Who knows? Um, and it's uh, a very interesting thing because like contrasting your experiences as a middle child with mine, I my sister's like, oh gosh, I don't know how much older, but six or seven years-ish older. So like totally different life stages when we were going through life. But my brother's about a year and a half, two years younger than I am. So very similar in that way. But it's uh, I had a very different middle child experience than yours, but it does sound like that negotiator role was something that you, uh,
1: you fell into. Yeah, and I can't even think about Distinct examples, and they could be somewhat implanted memories because of how much I mold over the negotiator role, and then what does that actually mean for my adult life? Mm -hmm. But things like going from playing video games with my brother, and okay, so we're spending that one on one time together, knowing that for whatever reason, my brother and sister were fighting at the time. To then immediately, you know, 15 minutes later, going and spending time one on one with my sister again, like has nothing to do with their relationship. And why would it? But as siblings, especially as siblings that are that close living under the same roof, like a lot of those dynamics come into play all the time. And it never felt like a, hey, you can't be friends with um, Andrew because you're being friends with Laura right now. It was more just like a, at the end of the day, I can rely on this one-on-one relationship, even if things in totality were not where they needed to be for the day or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't anything catastrophic. It would just be little tips that siblings have.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. And um, what about your relationship with your parents, like being a, a son to, I think you said, a, an outstanding mother or something along those lines? Oh, she's the best. So <laughs> this is something I think a lot about often, and
1: again, this is something that I wish um, that I understood the psychology behind more. But So maybe I think it was three years ago. My memory might just not be that good, but about three years ago, my mom's mom passed away. Mm -hmm. And it put into light a lot of the relationship that she that the two of them had, and how that has impacted the relationship that my mom has had with her own kids. Mm -hmm. So my brother, my sister and I. And more specifically, it was my grandmother lived for herself. Mm-hmm. She was a pretty incredible woman in that she had done a lot of great stuff. Like um, she was the first member, first female member of a country club. So she was the kind of person who would break barriers because it was a fuck it, I'm gonna do what I want attitude type thing. Mm-hmm. And she was awesome like that. And she was hilarious. She had the biggest vocab of literally any person that I've ever met. Super smart extremely charismatic, but was not your stereotypical caregiver. Mm -hmm. Couple that with the fact that I knew her in her, you know, as an adult, knowing her mostly in her last few years, you see your parents take on the role of caregiver and that then becomes a, all right, so you get a chance to look at the relationship in reverse almost to what I imagine it was when she was bringing up her own kids. Mm -hmm. Now what I've heard, and maybe this is unfounded, but this is how I take a look at the situation is that that same dynamic often reverses itself in the next generation. And so the fact that she lived for herself Seems to make the relationship with my mom, my sister, and my brother. My mom has really lived for us. Mm -hmm. And it's made her like the most incredible mother. She was a stay at home mom for 16 years, I think it was. So she left the workforce with my sister and didn't go back until all three of us were back out of the house, um, at least for high school. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, more self-sufficient, Laura can drive us to school that kind of thing. And a lot of her decisions and a lot of her identity, I think were wrapped up into taking care of us. And so when I think of that, I'm extremely grateful. And I often think that there is literally nothing that I could do to ever repay that. And I don't know that there's necessarily a need to repay it, but I think that it's like a, you've set the bar so high for off putting that energy to us that I don't know, like there's, there's just no equivalent in my mind. Mm -hmm. My father is someone that I respect immensely. I, uh, especially when we think about like the, the job stuff and what you're doing for work. So he was a career salesperson and he worked for a number of different banks for must be 35, 40 years. He worked his way up and started in a branch and then um, found a living in wealth management and Mm -hmm. managing a team of other advisors. He did very well for himself. And what I always think about now is I feel that the stress that he was able to put up with for the entirety of his life was much greater than what I'm even putting up with now. It might be a little bit different because technology is different, the ability for them to reach you outside of the office, that kind of thing. But I also know that this is something where he was able to do really, really well. And he was able to provide for his family so that his wife, my mom, could stay at home and raise these kids. And I remember little things of uh, growing up, like going out to eat and having a, uh, an older gentleman in a booth next to us actually buy um, ice creams for the kids. And he, was, he came up to my dad and he was just like, hey... A lot of times when we have kids sit next to us, they they bitch and moan the whole time. And I wanted to say, like, you're doing a great job with them. They say please and thank you. And I don't remember how old we were. It's probably another memory that I've heard enough times where I have thought about it because it's almost implanted. Mm -hmm. But it's a cool idea to think that he was able to do that and instill that discipline and instill that respect. Um, how much of it I still have today. That's something I'll let someone else determine. (laughs) But just growing up, it's like, I respect the hell out of him for that. Uh, Like one of the things that makes me happiest to hear is
3: my parents tell me that they're proud of him.
0: Mm. Mm. And before we move on to sort of the next stage, which is uh, Morgan and the girlfriend um, and the doggy dad uh, status is, uh, did you have a religious or spiritual upbringing to your childhood? I did
3: and it wasn't it's funny
1: that you say that I, I almost block that out of my mind not for any reason that hey something bad happened but more so because I so much don't affiliate with that learning or with that side of me now that it just doesn't even register mentally um I Went to mass on Sundays for a very long time growing up, Mm -hmm. and
3: then on. uh, I'm
1: trying to think. So we would do CCD for two weeks out of the summer each year, and that was the worst as a kid. (laughs) It's like, uh, what is CCD? I don't remember what it's It's like a youth for. camp, right? It's yeah, and so you go to you go to the church and it, you know, you stay there for the day. It's almost like school, but it's all for religious learnings. Mm-hmm. And it's a way for the Catholic schools to or the Catholic churches to groom kids for communion and for confirmation. Mm-hmm. And so the way that it worked at least when I was there, it was you don't get confirmed until I think you're 16. Mm-hmm. And it was the weirdest thing because we'd go to mass and it was something that my parents required, or at least my dad required me to do for all of these years growing up, spending hours and hours and hours doing this. And then as soon as we got confirmed, the burden was lifted and it was now you don't have to go to church anymore, do whatever you want. It's like, what is the end game? I've never really dug into that. I, it didn't ever seem to be an issue. Mm-hmm. And the one advantage that my mom would remind me of is then if you, you know, if you wanted to get married in a church, now you can. it's like that thought never even crossed my mind <laughs> as a kid. So. Mm-hmm. so, yes, I was rich, raised religious. However, I don't take into account any part of that in my adult life.
0: See, um, yeah, then what level of spirituality or um, faith do you have now in your adult life at 29?
3: I don't have much. I
1: recently have been talking to a couple of different people that I know are extremely religious, and I find myself trying to pick potholes in the story more so than trying to understand where they're coming from. And it's Mm -hmm. something that I don't necessarily want that to be the behavior that I'm exuding, but I truly can't help myself. And it feels like it's, and it's not like I know it well enough that I should be able to, you know, go after this from a scientific method or anything like that, but it's more so how could you possibly believe what you believe to be
3: true knowing where
1: so much of it seems contradictory at some foundational level mm-hmm. things like a um a guy that i know he is working at a baptist bible college and telling me like some of the stuff that goes on at the school And without getting into too much detail about it, essentially it ends up seeming like a a just big contradiction at the end of it in that there's little things like you could take the Roman Catholic version of the Bible and you take a look at some of the ways that they, um, uh, the word escapes me right now, but when you're taking a look at the gender of a particular word in Latin, Mm -hmm. the for the word for pastor comes out to a male version of it i guess Mm -hmm. and therefore one of the teachings is that now in present day they say that only men should be able to be pastors Mm -hmm. that's something that just to me doesn't make any sense for a second and so i always think about Like, how can you take that all the way back down to 2,000 years ago or 1,500 years ago and say that there's any ounce of truth in it? And that's basically my relationship with religion today is why do people believe in this? This seems to do more harm than good. I don't really understand it. And I don't think that I have any intention of continuing that thought train Mm -hmm. through, let's say I end up with kids. Like, I don't have any intention now of, raising them religious at all
0: Mm. there's you have a contentious relationship with religion as it stands now however i think that is separate from a sense of spirituality which is a connection to something bigger or greater or um other than the physical realm and do you have any relationship to spirituality now
1: uh to that end i would probably say no i don't I don't think that I have any conscious feeling of connectedness, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And
3: therefore I would say I don't have
1: a, at least any kind of real presence of spirituality in my life.
0: Mm -hmm. And do you, can you imagine that changing in the future? I can,
1: and I don't know what it would take to do that. I think part of the contentious relationship, that, like going back to that with religion, mm-hmm. has been around looking for examples of why that might not be the case or why the learnings that have been brought forth in any kind of traditional religion might not make sense to me. And so finding that same why and some of that same backing would be what it really would need foundationally to believe in something enough to start to look for that connectedness in everyday life.
0: Mm-hmm. All right, that's fair so now let's uh, let's get back on the train of uh, your responses to the prompts and how what um, tell me about this relationship you have with Morgan All right,
1: so Morgan and I are coming up on three years together three congratulations so, Thank you Sarah Thank you So the way that Morgan and I met was pretty funny actually, so back down in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, Mm -hmm. not too far from you. Mm -hmm. We were essentially living, you know, 90, 95% of our daily lives in this same triangle together without any knowledge of who each other were for the first year of this. Mm -hmm. And so what I mean by that is I was renting an apartment all of a few hundred feet from where her house was. And we were both working in the same exact office complex building. <laughs> and so we would take the same, you know, wake up not too far away from each other, take the same commute to work and work the day there. Mm-hmm. And then we would go to the same CrossFit gym afterwards. <laughs> and so our schedules were literally mirrored with seriously no idea that this was the case. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't until a while later that I started to try to grab her attention and that we actually ended up starting to date. Mm -hmm. Moved in pretty soon afterwards. And that has then turned into, to flash forward a bit, um, her coming up to Boston with me after I took the job with Medallia. Mm -hmm. And so we have, between us, she already had them, but she had two dogs. Mm -hmm. They're both pit bull mixes and they're adorable. They're the sweetest little animals Mm -hmm. and you've met them, right? Uh And so those, those are our little, our babies. And that's a big part of our relationship is taking care of them, you know, going on walks together, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And that actually is wonderfully wholesome and grounding because (laughs) Um, you've also known me in a period of life a period of my life where my MO was just to go party. And Mm -hmm. dating Morgan has leveled me out in a huge, huge, huge way, which is a very good thing for me. And it's something that I really needed to either show some kind of career development or personal development and one of the best things about her is that she is she's down for whatever, so she, if we think about how like music festivals is always what comes to my mind. Mm-hmm. We may decide to go to music festivals, like um you know our group of friends go to music festivals and get weird together mm-hmm. and the rule around the music festival has almost always been do whatever's going to make you happy, take care of your shit and have a good time. But outside of that, there's really no rules. Mm -hmm. And she is very much on board with that kind of mentality, especially at events like that. And so that has been a way that we've gotten closer together where with her coming to some of those, seeing some of my outside life, outside of what she's seen, in a, say, the CrossFit gym, which is a big part of ways that people experience each other socially. Mm-hmm. And I think that a foundation to a relationship has to be built, or doesn't have to, but it, it helps to have it built in, you know what all of those aspects are of some other person. Mm-hmm. And one of the great things about our relationship is that we really have seen each other in all of these different things. Mm-hmm. And so that that's been awesome i think that um you had asked in leading up to this about home and home is something where space lies. i don't feel that i have any attachment to any area but when i think about building a new home and making one that is not 54 Hair street and holden mm-hmm. like that is a mission that we're on collectively and that's that's a fun mission that's something that is exciting that's something that I don't know that there is timelines around anything I don't know that we have much if anything figured out I don't know that anyone has anything figured out mm-hmm. the older I get that's what it feels <laughs> like but it's awesome to be on a journey like that with someone else that I feel like gets me
0: mm-hmm. Good. So, yeah, it sounds like you go through a lot of uh, controlled stress together, which is uh, a great way to learn about each other. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I, think, I think it was her aunt was saying a
1: while ago, something with the effect of, you won't know each other until you've been through some key events together. The ones that she cited were things like moving. Um, Mm -hmm. traveling together and personal finances Mm -hmm. and I think there's there's much more to that I'm probably admitting a lot of it but that has been really true and that's been something that we've taken on together like remember in like the personal finance thing so she owned a house in Bethlehem and I remember being at the gym coaching one night getting a call from her and she was Was not happy and the basement had been built without any kind of drainage system and so you know like a few years after the fact they'd put in a sub pump and the pump had failed in this massive rainstorm and so when she called me standing in ankle deep water in the basement with everything flooded Mm -hmm. and so you know like went home we vacuumed out the basement to the best of our ability and decided to do our first like big home ownership investment which was have French drains installed, and there are things like that. When, especially when you know, I still think of us as kids. Like that's not a really fun thing to do, mm-hmm. but it's something that you need to. And it's you know, a ton of money. And watching things like that, and being able to form a team when you have something unfortunate like that happen is definitely. Something that we do very well together.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, just uh, personally, I I kind of that those kinds of things where it's like, who else is going to do this? I have to do this. Is sort of I think, especially with uh, the child coming on the way, I think of that as like dad space, where it's just like. You got to, somebody's got to clean the toilet and not just the inside, but also the outside and on the ground around it. And who else is going to do that? Not my pregnant spouse, but I'm going to have to do that. So <laughs> let, let's do that. And let's at least like not make this terrible and like kind of at not enjoy it, but at least find a way to make it this like a part of my life now. And that sounds Yeah. Like, and you know, that. Hmm?
1: No, go for what you're saying. No, no. You, that sounds like what? You, you go, go, go. Um, That, to me, when people think about relationships, I don't know that that always registers, especially while you're dating. But I I think that that's a big part of one of the reasons why I love this relationship is that there is this aspect. And when you think about what the future needs to hold, you need to form a good team to have something solid together Mm -hmm. and that's why i that's why i feel good about it a lot of the time it's just like that can suck a lot of times when you're just like when you think about the examples of okay well someone has to do this can we figure this thing out together a lot of the examples that come to mind are things that are less than favorable that can make it through some kind of adverse life event together Mm -hmm. um i know that one of those things is moving I don't know that anyone really likes moving. I don't mind it that much, but it's not something that I would choose to do. And I know that Morgan and I have moved a couple times now (laughs) and it it got easier each time for a number of reasons, I'm sure. But it's something that like that takes a lot of team coordination. And so that's definitely a cool thing to be able to do together too. And honestly, at the end of the day, just the fact that she was willing to move And family for her is back down in Pennsylvania, not Mm -hmm. too, it's actually like really close to where you are. Mm -hmm. And like, that's a pretty big leap of faith too. Like that kind of stuff is always really cool to me. Mm
0: -hmm. And, um, there is this aspect of, uh, you know, a lot of people in our generation use dogs as practice for actual children, Right. And I wonder, um, is this, is this an aspect that you two have discussed or thought about in terms of expanding your family? Um, n- yes and no. I think
1: recently we were actually talking with Adam about this and, um, Adam, as you know, recently got his own dog and it was, you know, it very much seems like it's part of at least this experiment run for expanding the family. But it- it's also just because he wanted to get a dog, right? Mm-hmm. We started the conversation of could you equate something numerical to the difficulty factor between having a kid and having a dog? How much more difficult is it in some <laughs> kind of multiple to have a kid? And I think that we decided that it was something on the order of magnitude of thirty times more difficult. I don't know how we came up with that number, but. There's a lot of stuff where it's like, you know, if you don't train your dog, you're going to have an untrained dog. And that's the end of it. Mm -hmm. If you don't send your kid to school or help with your kid's education and like get them to learn, something much worse (laughs) spiral out of that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so when you think about what the, uh, or at least when we thought about what the stakes were and what that might actually look like it's a very different beast than just trying to do the dogs. Mm-hmm. That being said,
3: the dogs
1: are so, so spoiled. <laughs> and I certainly don't do anything to help that situation either. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that you and I were talking right when we got on about honeys right over in the next room over there. and. Mm-hmm um having dublin the older of my two just cry and then once he starts crying we let it go for a while until finally i usually cave and i'm just like all right what do you want you want more food do you want a toy do you want someone to just be with you and when i think about that i know that that, that is not a way that i would want a parent a kid, I wouldn't want to bring them into a world in which I just cave and do whatever they want for them, because I think that that's not going to be what's going to make them a strong individual. So I think a lot about that of how have we trained or raised dogs, and what that would look like moving forward into the future, and are we screwed because <laughs> we have spoiled the dogs?
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> um. Is there, so like we talked earlier about, um, your sense of home, buying a home, making a new home with Morgan is sort of like something that you might get surprised by. You don't really have a timeline for. And, um, it sounds like it's very similar in sort of starting a family where it's like, you don't really have any guideposts necessarily, or are there? I think the biggest guidepost would be
1: biological clock. Mm -hmm. which isn't something that I particularly like to point to, because I think that it's a a pressure. I think it's an external pressure as opposed to something that you wanted to originate. Mm -hmm. That being said, I think that there's a ton of validity to it. And Mm -hmm. especially when we take, this is one of those decisions that when I think about it, it's tough for me to talk or think linearly because there are so many different ch- tangential things that would need to go into making it successful. Mm-hmm. So things like, would you want to have a kid while living in a 650 square foot apartment in Boston? I personally wouldn't. So then there needs to be some kind of geographic move. Mm-hmm does that move come with buying a new house or is it renting? Ideally it's buying a new house and then it's, all right, do you have a job that can support whatever the decision is financially to have that house and be able to meet all of your bills? And you can just see where this goes, where it just spirals into, I could think about this forever. And then it's, we just need to start taking some kind of action here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that. And that that tends to be, like, to me, a juxtaposition of, did you plan this out and have a plan, or did you just start doing something so that you can make moves to get to where you need to go?
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the biological clock clock is quite real, and uh, it can be the unfortunate thing that pushes people a lot of the time. And it's not
1: going away (laughs) so it's only gonna get louder and faster (laughs) (laughs) so i think that that's probably our biggest post whether or not we want it to be again it's it is a reality Mm -hmm. and there's a lot a lot of things that could take a lot a lot of time i think so much of life ends up being what is practical versus what is desired Mm And I think that you can find some good common ground between the two. But I think that trying to plan for something ideal is foolish a lot of times.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, you'll just end up waiting a really long time.
1: Exactly. Like, you could wait forever to try to get things to line up right. That just might never happen. Or if they do, it could be when you found true stability sometime in your forties or fifties. And by that time, did you just let life pass you by? Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 uh, like this idea of, um, your sense of readiness is very different from your actual state of readiness. Like you will be ready always before you feel ready and, uh, figuring out when you actually are ready. So that your sense of readiness can catch up is important, but, uh, waiting for that sense of readiness, uh, you might always be waiting for that, but you might have been ready the whole time.
1: Do you ever think of like, um, minimum viable product? Like what is the, it would be like more of a, if you want to launch something, but even if it's you launching the podcast what is the minimum viable product that you would need to have to be able to just come to market and or community with some kind of thing? Mm-hmm. A lot of times from what I've heard, and this could either be listening to a podcast or friends that are trying to do something similar. The idea is if you wait until you have something that you think is perfect, you've already waited too long.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So to your comment about state of readiness versus mentally. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that's what i think about all the time where sometimes it's just like we're not gonna be ready if there's no 100 percent prepared you can be as prepared as you should be and you go from there knowing that you can take down what you need to along the way
0: mm-hmm. good stuff. bias for action <laughs> yes exactly let's uh so now let's move on to the next prompt before i die i want how do you finish that so that is, before I die, I want the be in flux.
1: And I think a lot of it boils back down and actually segues nicely from the I am, which is, you know, when we were starting to wrap that up, we said the whole thing of, I was saying the whole thing about trying to think about this linearly. And I do think of life and death more as a line than anything else. Mm -hmm. tends to be a what kind of practical things need to happen along the way, more so Mm -hmm. than before I die, I I want. Mm -hmm. So like the I want thing being operative there. Um, What I want is to be able to establish a new home that has Mm -hmm. a new family as part of that. Mm -hmm. And there's some really basic things that i foresee going directions that either i don't feel like i have control or that that I just sort of let them happen and so those things would be, be like stability i would like stability before i die and that is something that i feel like i had as a kid mm-hmm. and that i feel like i've lost all- a lot of through college and then into my adult life and stability is relative. But I think that what I would like to see is things like my um, brother and sister to stay really close as Mm -hmm. we get older. Um, One thing that I think about often is families falling out of touch for reasons that I consider to be like not totally justified. Um, A good example of that is when I think about the relationship between my mom and her sisters, I think that they've been at different points during different times of their lives. And a lot of that has had to do with things like family death. So I think that for a while, um, so going way back, uh, I would have had an uncle on that side of the family. He, I guess, looked just like me, which is like a big thing that my uh, relatives love to tell me. When he was (laughs) about 25 years old, he tried to stop someone from committing armed robbery and stealing his car Mm -hmm. and was killed in the process. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of like the risk-taking behavior that I have and my desire to just go do life the way that I want to is frowned upon when they look at that. But Mm -hmm. some of those things have helped to pull that side of the family together. Like we're not taking blame here. This is a, let's get through this together. But then when his mom, so my grandmother passed away, things started to pour into the family. Things like the estate had to divide that up. Things like um, who gets access to which, what money, who gets access to what things that have some kind of value, like personal value of this is something that meant a lot to me growing up or like you, you understand all, all
3: those things for sure
1: recently again considering that she only passed away about three years ago recently the relationships between my mom and one of her sisters have been extremely strained Mm -hmm. and I think about that with my brother and my sister where I get the sense that they were all really close like the three of us are back when they were growing up Mm -hmm. and watching this now fall to pieces where it's you have built up 50 or 60 years of family ties together. And yeah, not everything's gonna be perfect, but are you really willing to throw that away over a hundred thousand dollars? Like that that's something that when I think about getting old and when I think about the rest of my life, I want to maintain that stability both like personal and career-wise, but also in my relationships. And you and I were talking too um this is coming full circle for me right now about the stock that i take in who i am based on the relationships that i've been able to build and Mm -hmm. i think that that's like a big driving force for me when it's what it what like were you successful at the end of the day were you successful career wise did you make a bunch of money or were you successful in that a a shit fuck ton of people came to your funeral and you feel successful maybe and maybe you don't even feel successful, but it's like people wanted to be there for you and people respected you or liked to be with you and you were able to leave your mark on the world by putting forth this idea of, all right, like you have created some kind of social persona that people enjoy.
0: Yeah, and I'm struck with this idea that um, like... Was were those relationships strained before the death and before the stressor of the giving up of the finances? And was that more of just like showing the cracks that were already there in the foundation? And, or was that truly the driving factor? And I, I'm, I per, like, from what you told me, it sounds like it's almost like the, uh, you know, like going, they, they didn't have stressors along the way sort of like going to the festivals, having the financial stuff that you and Morgan have, they didn't have that. It was just like, all of a sudden, boom, there's this giant stressor of the death of the mother of the family, which is huge. And um, then that shows a lot of the distance and the cracks in the way that they grew apart. So that's an interesting question. And since you say that,
1: there definitely was stressors along the way. And, And... what's interesting is if we want to take a look at that part of the story in with more context so my grandfather so the mother or the father rather of um my mom and the sisters Mm -hmm. he did really well for himself financially from a family perspective Mm -hmm. I would question what success looked like there. And more specifically, he um, had been married a bunch of times. He had an affair while he was with uh, my grandmother. And so they had a... Agreeable relationship, but not a loving, nurturing relationship. Like a professional relationship. Right, exactly. Like, hey, we have these kids together. I guess we got to do something with them. Um, (laughs) And we're going to be in each other's lives. And when I think about that, that's something that, as far as trauma goes and as far as difficulties go, that can have a huge impact. And I think that the daughters, so my mom and her sister, has had different relationships and different strength ties to each one. So like, I think that I get, I always get the sense that my mom's relationship was much closer with her mother than it was with her father. Mm -hmm. I get the sense that from some of the sisters that that might be the case in reverse. I'm sure that all plays into it as well. Like when we think about what there's, def, there were definitely cracks there. Is like a really long-winded way to say there. It wasn't just here is your perfect house and then it was torn apart by a tornado. It mm-hmm. was this has been battered for a while in mm-hmm. different ways. Um,
3: I always think that stuff's so interesting because
1: when I think about. My relationship with my brother or my sister, there's only so much you can do to keep things together, but you can always forgive. And there's going to be times when actions are crazy, however you want to define crazy, that may do some kind of damage and may start to tap into that exchange, like that base of trust and um, reliability or whatever. But I think that that can be rebuilt if you are willing to let it be. And when I think about what that looks like long-term, it's tough to say because you don't know what is exactly your life is going to look like and you don't know what their lives are going to look like or what you are going to do or what they're going to do. But you have some control of that, right? And you can continue to forgive them. And I like to, at least for the most part, think that Humanity deserves, like, whatever, a fair shot. And so when you meet people, then you can give them a fair shot. And that that is a view that's not necessarily held by all of the people close to me. Um, Morgan, for instance, is pretty opposite on that. Like, you need to prove yourself first before I'm going to give you a shot. Um, I think that that is like an introversion, extroversion thing where that definitely plays into who you're going to let into your life, all of that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I guess to go way, way back to what you were saying of what did that household look like? And was there a single driving force? No, there certainly wasn't a single driving force. It was more of a, here's the next thing. And it happened to just be a really big thing to give each side enough ammunition to back up whatever their claims were for we should have more of a division at this point.
0: Mm. Mm, I see. So we talked a lot about the relationships that you want to have on your deathbed and uh, like going into that, ambiguous future and we talked about the family you want to build and the house that you want to have. Um what else do you want before you die?
3: What else do I want before I die?
1: There's a big part of me that wants to establish some kind of legacy. And mm-hmm. a lot of times when I think about that, it is some kind of business legacy. Mm-hmm. It would be how to create some kind of footprint. And I think a big driver of that is a, do you remember read wait, but why? No. So it's a really interesting um, blog that this guy does. And a lot of the blogs are really, really long, but they get into <laughs> some interesting stuff and Recently, I was reading one of these and it was on, I don't remember what the overall topic was, but the part that I took away from it was on introspection mm-hmm. and the idea that when you want to try to figure out you versus like, what, what do you actually hold as your own values versus what might you be projecting as familial values or your social values or your work values or like whatever that happens to look like. Mm -hmm. um you have to take your your personality octopus Mm -hmm. you have to take it and it's just like a, a thing that has a bunch of different legs and you are at the center but then it has those other things right like your practical arm, your social arm, your financial arm, like, and whatever that, whatever the rest of those look like. And so that's how you start to, and each part, each part of that arm has all of these different little things that contribute to it. So like social could be your, uh, your girlfriend. It could be, I guess, even like your dogs. Um, it could be your friend group. It could be the people that you associate with at work. And when you start to dissect that even further it's like starting to bring this octopus into d- different levels of this room where you're going to beat him up and you're going to try to take the ski mask off to see if at the root of this is this a value that you have because eugene you pull off the mask and eugene is there or is this something where you pull off the mask finally and it's your mom there and mm-hmm. you're just like holy crap this is something that is some uh or in some way it's something that i want because of my mom a lot of the drive, so bear with me through this tension. yeah it's a good. lot of this drive is based on um, like wanting to have that stability that is entirely rooted in something financial. So, and I think that that goes back to, if I think about why I want to do that, is what my dad was able to do, which was put us through. College, which was make sure that we didn't have to make decisions about um, walking into my house one night, and my my cat, who I really really loved, was crawling around on only two feet. Turned out the cat had a stroke, and we were able to take it to Tufts Animal Hospital to have emergency surgery. Like things like that that money affords you. Mm -hmm. I always wanted to, in my own adult life, be able to provide that same thing for whoever is going to be in my immediate circle. Mm -hmm. Uh, If Dublin ends up needing, like Dublin is one of my two dogs, if he ends up needing some kind of um, like medication that's gonna cost me hundreds of dollars a month, I wanna make that a decision of, oh, I couldn't do that because I didn't have enough money or Mm -hmm. I couldn't provide for my family or I couldn't give them the opportunities that they needed to also make them successful. And so a big part of that legacy is Going back to some kind of stability and Mm -hmm. seeking that out, or if you want to think about how like healthcare fascinates me, Mm -hmm. and a part of it is psychology, and then part of it is also and just like based on personal interest, exercise and what that does one for your psychology, but then two, just for you know overall longevity. I always find you personally fascinating because (laughs) I go into the convenience store and something's on the bottom shelf and I'm like, maybe I could pick it up with my foot and I have to bend over. And then I look at you going out and like playing on the jungle gym and stuff like that. And you're insanely capable still. (laughs) And for, for nothing else other than that, it's like, you know, that's a cool thing when we think about longevity and creating this solid base. And so back to healthcare and what that could look like, it's, I think that we have a lot of really big problems. And I think that there's a lot of people, people much more than myself trying to fix these big problems and i would love to be part of um, a company at some foundational level that wants to help start to solve more of these world problems so it is okay you spend your life doing something good for humanity because at the end of the day yeah you matter to some degree but you are what just what is it you're uh, just stardust collecting starlight. Mm-hmm. And so I think about like that kind of thing. Yes, you know, the world's going to be a really different place even when you and I are 60 years old, but it's going to be a much, much different place in the next few hundred years. And there needs to be some people doing things not just for themselves today, but doing them for setting us up better in the future. Right now, I am not doing that at all, which is part of my qualm with work.
0: Gotcha. Um, I guess one line of questioning that I want to go down is it sounds like this financial stability, this providing essentially, like you want to provide for the people that you love. Um, there's I guess my and this isn't fully formed in my head, it's a question of at what level of providing is enough? Because it's it, it within the line of, you know, like let's make this more grounded. So like if if your dog gets sick and needs emergency surgery and you are unable to financially provide the surgery that might be necessary to prolong your life, would you you consider yourself a failure not being able to provide that? And then extrapolating that into the future, like what level of demand or quote necessity is a reasonable expectation for your provision of it? Both of those are phenomenal questions <laughs> um,
1: because the answer is one yes.
3: I would feel like a failure. Mm-hmm. Um, so
0: let me think about that for a second. Let me At let me just level. Yeah, let me do some rambling while you think. All right. Maybe this'll yeah, uh, yeah, just, yeah, maybe this will synthesize it a little bit more. So, like, um, you know how I was just talking about dad space and like, you know, doing the things that need to be done, that's sort of like dad stuff, or like at least mm-hmm. parents stuff, um, to take the gender out of it. I see also the desire to provide and to ensure survival or however you define it, like to like. I want them to be stable. That is a very parent level desire. And it's a very understandable desire. You know, you don't want your kid to be eaten by a bear. Like that so you provide safety for the child and you you kill all the bears in the area so that they don't get eaten by a bear. <laughs> but then I think of that is such a very biologically driven desire. And I think the higher level desire is like the grandparent level where on the deathbed you don't wish for financial stability for your children or your grandparents or your grandchildren you wish for them to have the skills necessary to navigate life on their own does that make sense so it's like almost operating on that higher level where you don't want to be the one that provides them a sandwich you want to make sure that they are able to make their own sandwich yeah
1: that's
0: fair and um so
1: yeah go uh, well so a line to me it boils back down to you and I have been surrounded by people that I think it's fair to say generally speaking have had a lot of opportunity, right? Mm-hmm. Like I know that I personally have had a ton of opportunity. I know that like um going to a school like Tufts, we're surrounded by people that have had a ton of opportunity.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um I don't know that that's like, that's not true of everyone, but that's uh, for the vast majority of the people there. And then they're going to have, they're going to walk away with that with this, um, this amazing education too. Right. Mm -hmm. This breaks back down to me to be, what level have you, you provided enough? So Mm -hmm. that back Mm -hmm. to that question Mm -hmm. there is, you could call this whatever you want, but there's the treadmill effect, right? Of as soon as you have something in your grasp, you want the next thing. So Mm -hmm. whatever you're currently running through, it's it's the the plane is moving, you're just standing still. Mm -hmm. And you are going to continue to do that. And every time you get a new benchmark, you are always going to be looking out for what's the next best thing. And you could continue to run on that treadmill until you die, Mm -hmm. which I think is what happens to a lot of people. I think there's also a happiness trade-off, depending on what you're actually striving for, where if your treadmill is driven financially, then you can very quickly find yourself in an environment where you are now exchanging happiness to try to get the next best thing for the treadmill. Mm -hmm. All of that is to say, I think that there's a baseline, and I, I am sure, thinking about this now, that it is back to... A projection at some level of what my parents were able to provide, which are things like I would want. You could say the sentence I would want my children to have a life very similar to the one that I
3: lived. Mm -hmm. Well,
1: I can't make that decision because I don't know what the world that they're going to be born into is going to look like. But I think that I felt very fortunate. And it's something that I would like them to not have to have more struggles than I had, which let's be real, like in the grand scheme of things, were very, very few struggles.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Does that, I, that's, I feel like that's still a vague high level answer to the question, but does that start to put parameters around it?
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's more like, I want to poke your ideas and see what kind of comes out. And uh, I think I uh, got an, a decent idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like where where you're going with it too, because...
1: There's a ton of different ways that you could look. I like that you brought it back down to biologically. So when I think of what, at least for me, biologically, what the worst case scenario is, is to be a pariah and to be some kind of outcast because generationally being a pariah would mean that you have limited survivability left. Like you are, your time is ticking on the, Planet and like your gene pool is going to die out if that's what ends up happening We don't have to deal with a lot of that stuff because life makes it so that everyone can survive but not everyone but like for a lot of people to survive at least the ones that are living lives similar to what you and i are mm-hmm. and i still think that that drive and like that paternal let me make this provision for whoever my imaginated children or my (laughs) dogs or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Like, I I always, I think that that is something that is ever present. Part of it is like, why even have a career that you don't like in any facet? If you think that there's going to be an infinite number of other ways that you'd be able to provide for your kids
3: or for yourself. how do you
0: finish the next prompt when i die i want
1: in the shortest way when i die i want people around me to be happy and not in a way that's like we're happy that you died but we're you know what i mean like there's not to say it that way but like um the the, i I think back to um this is a funny circle to take for me because there's a a ton of different ways that i could think about how this plays out but i think about my grandmother's funeral Mm -hmm. it was actually pretty awesome there were people that showed up from all over the place and essentially the funeral was a roast (laughs) and it was (laughs) hilarious like it took this really 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 sad event and it made it really funny it made it really evident what kind of person she was Mm -hmm. and people had these great things to say about her um or like really funny mean things to say about her (laughs) but like that kind of happiness that comes out of it as like okay i'm glad that i knew this person they put in their time in the world and it was like a good time for them to depart that kind of feeling but that is the same kind of feeling that i would want when i And I think that we've partly answered this of the grandparent question of, did you set up a legacy, whatever you want to call that legacy, if it's like your gene pool, or if it's your offspring, if it's um, something work-wise, did you set up something that is self-sufficient enough that, you know, like you called it out, that they have the skills to be able to continue to provide basically, did you make sure that you are not just making sure that everyone in the next generation is screwed? I just don't think that I think that that would be like to take it in the opposite direction. I think that exactly the opposite of what I would want when I die is that I was a resource intensive burden on the world. And that it's like, man, you know, you really didn't do anything good for anyone else except for yourself.
0: Mm. Okay. So you have, you mentioned the good example of your grandmother, um, with that, with that funeral roast. Um, do you have an example that defines that negative experience?
2: not that
1: comes to mind immediately mm-hmm. and that could be for a number of different reasons um the first thought that actually came to my head is when i think about like what the leave behind is like the immediate aftermath it's usually such an event that's so shrouded in sadness or Like, hey, I'm so sorry that this happened type conversation, that it's Mm. tough to actually get to what that person was like, which I think is why I liked um, like Mm. the way that my grandmother's funeral played out so much where it wasn't just like, a, you know, they they still had that whole thing. But I remember going to the country club and this. This was the country club that she had joined that she had been part of for a long time. And it had been years since she was actually able to golf. Like she wasn't in good enough shape to be able to do that anymore. But the, like even the waiters and waitresses there were like, Hey, I'm so sorry for your loss. Like, you know, we loved her. She was awesome. That kind of thing. And you don't see that, or I haven't personally seen that in reverse where it's, first off I don't think that people are going to speak ill ill of the dead especially at an event like that but Mm -hmm. I also think that it's tough to see what that really looks like um an example now that I'm thinking about it of legacy that I think is really awesome so it's another good example so it doesn't answer your question directly but it's a another way to look at it that's hey this is a really cool thing. Um, my chemistry teacher in high school passed away recently and she, she was honestly an incredible influence in my life and then the lives of a lot of my friends from high school. Um, this woman was quite frankly brilliant and so are all three of her kids. Mm-hmm. Um, when I think about like what strong People she made her children and the knowledge etc that she bestowed upon them like that's the kind of thing where that is okay. You have done one some incredible stuff, and two you've set up an incredible legacy. Like even if you're not thinking about it that way, like you're a you're a chemistry teacher at a, a private school and you are spending your days equipping students for one, to just be able to get into college, but two, just general education on a field of science that I think is super, super valuable. And like, when I think of that kind of legacy, I think that that is also awesome. And it's not necessarily one where it's like, hey, let me go chase the paper for all of my life to figure out how I can make a trust fund for someone down the road. Like that's, let me share gifts that I've accrued through a lifetime, like a career in a field of science, and then start to arm the rest of the youth with that kind of information. Mm. I don't know that I'd want to teach, but I do think that teachers are awesome. <laughs> Fair
0: statement. It's like saying moms are awesome. You're like... Well, well, yeah, right? Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> So, okay. So this conversation we've had is very much in the after you die kind of category, like talking about the, the wake and, and how they mm-hmm. impact on them. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you have had um, a direct experience with death, witnessing or participating in the death of
3: someone or something? So
1: reel me in a little bit here because the first thing that you said, something or something, uh, someone or something rather, um, the a lot of times I... I guess like the first thing that comes to my mind is thinking about a pet that I had for Mm -hmm. a very, very many years growing up Mm -hmm. and the experience of holding that animal Mm -hmm. while they put it to sleep.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And it's like a really weird feeling and it's sort of haunting where one second that animal is breathing and is scared. And the next second, that animal is dead, right? Like, Mm -hmm. that's it. And that... So that's the same... So that is a cat that... I'm trying to think of how long we had. It was Dusty. Mm -hmm. Real real original name for a bunch (laughs) of kids to name their kitten. Um, But we... Must have been like when I was a uh, maybe like 22 years old, so not
3: not recently, but not that um, out of memory either. Was this when we were living at Harbor Point
2: when we were living together? No, it couldn't have been.
1: This must have been after that, okay? So maybe 23. I just feel like it was more, I feel like it was longer ago than five or six. And thinking about time passing. It was weird. So no, that's, that's very possible. that this was, um, this was after the fact. So let's say it was like 23 years old. That Mm -hmm. might make sense. Um, I don't know that I'm going to be able to get at the heart of the question of like experience with death. Um, I might need well, your help with- Yeah, let me,
0: let me put this in, so, like I, so I've, I'm in the process of reading my weekly reflections on medical school and mm. I just hit the one almost exactly a year ago and that was uh, when our, our cat Frank died and he was an adoptive cat, uh, he kind of came over to us and just uh, started living at our house and uh, I participated in his death. And it was a it was the first time I had participated in the death of something of something or someone that I cared about. Um, And so that was a very different experience. And it really weighed on me. And I didn't realize how long it waited me until months later uh, when I really kind of felt like I was like, okay, I feel like I actually did Frank good. Like I didn't you know, it, it was it was a traumatic death for him, but it was, I think the best death possible for him because he was in a lot of pain and, uh, he had stroked out a couple of times we think, or at least seized. And, uh, he was just definitely in a lot of pain and losing a lot of weight. So I think it would, even now a year later, I still feel like it was the best decision question on timing, but, um, It was tough and to like have him die in my hands was a really difficult experience, but I think it was really formative in that it set a stage for me being much more willing to embrace honey who is 11 years old now. And knowing Mm -hmm. that realistically within the, like probably before the end of residency, I'm going to participate in her death. And it's it, you know, in the same way that we use, animals to practice for children, I think it's a very good way to practice for other humans that end up dying. And grandparents are a great practice for death too, because they're already old. They've lived a life. They've had kids that had kids. That's the definition of a grandparent. Right?
1: <laughs> so that does give me more context. And this is something where I've had very limited experience with death. And I consider myself fortunate to be able to say that mm-hmm. in that, it means that a lot of people or animals that are, are close to me are still around. Um, I remember taking a class in my senior year of high school on the denial of death. Mm-hmm. And it was I took it because my physics teacher, who was this awesome guy who like, really got me interested in science for the first time, he was teaching us and it was like sort of physics and sort of philosophy a little bit of mix between the two mm-hmm. and one of the readings was on like specific to the of death is hiding um like fecal matter and how we approach that subject as human beings mm-hmm. where the example he gave is that he came to the school for an interview before he worked there and and he really needed to use the bathroom and he was embarrassed to ask because he didn't want to go to the interview and take a shit. And the thought occurred to him of like, why I am I embarrassed about this? Like, what does this all really mean? And this article that we were reading at the time had a big part about like, we clean up all of the different things around us that have any indication of like something dying right like we mm-hmm. put it away we sort of shelter ourselves from it in a way and why do we actually do that and there there's no definitive answer but it's I think more that we choose not to think about it and almost do it so that it's out of sight out of mind mm-hmm. and I think that that there's a ton of truth to that in my own personal life and even thinking about that like little insignificant things or things that might appear insanely insignificant should have really had to like go through something much more traumatic like
3: um,
1: like a cat bringing in so we always had cats growing up a cat bringing in some kind of animal that they had named this animal and mm-hmm. you knew it was going to die you can't just re-release this thing out into the wild because mm-hmm. Um, like what's going to happen? Like you don't have any way to put the organs back in the squirrel that they've brought back into the house. Mm-hmm. What do you do with it then? Do you put it out of its misery and give it a peaceful death? Like, well, I don't know what the right answer is there, but I remembered not being able to step on this animal, um, per the request of someone else in my house that was just like oh my god like this poor thing put it put it put it out of its misery and not being able to do that being like totally freaked out by the idea of killing another animal Mm -hmm. um to that same degree like i thought a lot about hunting Mm -hmm. and then when it comes right down to it would i be able to kill another animal or even thinking about like the kind of creeped out feeling i get if i accidentally run something over on the road which i think has happened like one maybe two times where it's like a squirrel or something like that and it still like gives me a really weird feeling i don't know what that is but it's something that's like i really wish i didn't just do that because it doesn't feel good Mm -hmm. and and I know I'm sort of spiraling on this, but I don't know, like, I can't even imagine what that same feeling is for myself. Um, I think that all of that is to say, you have the tattoo on your arm that's um, memori mentum, or what is it? More what Mento is it? mori. Mento mori, thank you. Um, that is essentially remember that you're going to die, right? hmm So, I think that I have taken a very opposite stance to it, not deliberately, but it's the easier way to think about it. That is, I have not thought about my own death much at all.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And I don't know that that's a good thing because it is definitely going (laughs) to (laughs) happen. But I don't know, it's like when I die. I think that mostly when I think about it is like what happens after the fact. Mm-hmm. Like the actual aspect of death. One of the things that freaks me out is the idea of getting old in that your one of two things could happen uh, and one of a, a ton of things could happen, but either your mind doesn't keep up with your body or your body doesn't keep up with your mind. Mm -hmm. And in either one of those states, that to me seems insanely frustrating and probably frustrating is one of many, many emotions that you might think of that, which like that could be something where you feel totally defeated from it. And Mm -hmm. I think that that's a pretty common reality for a lot of people. When I get to the point where my body is not keeping up anymore, if that's the case, like to me, and it might be because of all of the stake that I put personally on physical body to this point in my life, like my ability to be good at CrossFit or something like that. Then I can't actually imagine a world in which I'm not able to, you know, get up, tie my shoes, and walk out the door. And eventually, at some point in my life, that will happen where you're not able to do that. Mm-hmm or you're not even able to think about doing that. And I think that that to me has always been like a, when that time comes, that's the time that I like am ready to die. Mm. I think that's probably a really naive way to look at it.
0: No, I mean, you have your values, and your values will determine a lot of how you go through life. And if your values are very important on physical wellness and and movement, then I think it stands to reason that it should have a strong impact on the way you die. If that makes sense. I guess my question for you is I know you you just said that you haven't thought a lot about your death, but um, do you have any experiences? or um, any any like stories that might give you insight on what the moment of dying would look like or feel like transitioning from life to death.
1: That's interesting
0: because that to me goes back
1: to the religious backing that I already told you I often don't think about at all. Mm-hmm. And... I don't know that I would have the same answer had you not asked me that question, because I don't know (laughs) that I would be thinking about it at all.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, I think a lot about like DMT Mm -hmm. and people. So I don't know the first thing about it, (laughs) but what I can tell you is that if you go online and you start reading about it, you're going to find things about how, Oh, this is released your body when you're born, when you die. And for what super traumatic life experiences. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if there's truth to that, or if that's just something that I read online, but I can also tell you that it is um, a pretty out there, surreal experience to have felt any of that. And that same experience thing Mm-hmm. To me, it's something that I don't know that that will be a feeling of death because I don't believe that there is an afterlife. So to me, it seems more so that your conscious would die with you when you pass away and that mm-hmm. you as a sack of nutrients would then be decomposed by the earth and then like put back into micro fragments of you put back into everything like the trees and the grass and all of that. Mm -hmm. So when I think about death, it's more just like a step back into the circle of life than it is when I die, I'm going to be rejoined by friends and families lost uh, back up in heaven or something like that. Like I definitely don't have any um, conception of that. I don't really think that there's any going into the light or whatever that feeling is. Um, I think it's more just like when the lights turn off, they just turn off.
0: Mm. All right. Now, that, I mean, now we're, now let's really dive into the after you die. Um, how do you finish that prompt after I die, I want.
1: So after I die, I want you, you were saying before too, uh, probably a lot of the answers that I had given for when I die, mm-hmm. to actually talk about after I die. And so I don't want to spiral too much on the same thing but um thinking more about legacy and when i die or i sorry after i die it's interesting how they, they feel very intertwined to me mm-hmm. and I, I totally understand now um, with your prompt of do you have any notion of what it's like to die <laughs> um after
3: i die i want
1: I want whatever stability I was able to develop through my life to continue into the lives of friends and family. And so, friends, yeah. And, um, and so when I think about that, too, it's like, like It's tough for me to say things like, oh, I think that I will live to X number of years because I know that I abuse my body and I probably don't take very good care of myself. (laughs) That being said, I have a notion in my head of just like the order of things and a lot of averages, knowing that everyone contributes to those averages in some way.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So we can start to extrapolate on that. And when I think about that, it's like, even for my brother and my sister like let's say we are dying at different times there too i want them to have stability and i think that that's like a big ask depending on what's happening for them day to day because like between the three of us things are always like way away all over the place um one day you're in prison and the next day like, <laughs> you are working you know like it could go it goes on a huge spectrum and so between family that is existing and family that is just a thought at this point like my own personal family like these hypothetical children that I'm having someday I want that same stability to flow through and I think that a big part of that is did you walk the earth today contributing to some kind of legacy that would allow that stability to happen for them? Mm. I think a lot about this. So have you read um,
0: Sapiens? Yep. Did you read the follow-up to that, Homo Deus? I'm uh, working my way through it. I find it less engaging than Sapiens. Oh, really? Okay, so I have not read Sapiens, but I did read
1: Homo Deus, and I found it to be very interesting primarily because of the idea that things like religion or current thinking are just that, they're current thinking, and that these things are just as flexible and or fragile as every other one that has come before and so one of the things that i think about in a more advanced world is being good Mm -hmm. what does that actually mean and so like to me being good breaks back down to like treating one another with some kind of compassion and Mm -hmm. respect And that's like, and I really believe in those kind of things. Like I want other people to do that that same thing. And I think that that's part of the reason why, like for sales culture to really bring this full circle, that I don't believe in what a lot of the behaviors are, because I think that they are exactly the opposite of treating people with compassion and respect. Mm -hmm. Um, Like treating people with numbers, uh, treating people like numbers rather is just like at a foundational level disagrees with me like (laughs) i'm not like oh my god i'm freaking out about this i'm not a holier than that and i've done my fair share and continue i'm sure we'll continue to do things that i'm not proud of but i think that on the whole if i were to look at that on aggregate throughout my life and then like what kind of behaviors my legacy are continuing to exude like i'd want want that to be on the whole overwhelmingly positive compared to whatever negative they're doing and that is like to me that's a teaching thing where it's so we like it's not a religious teaching necessarily I think that a lot of religious teachings end up being a a way to enforce morality but I don't think you need religion to have morality by any means so Mm -hmm. that just comes back down to do you believe that you should be helping your brothers and sisters both literally and figuratively to make sure that there's like some kind of
3: basic human rights?
2: Mm.
0: You dug into a lot of really good stuff there. And, um, I think I like just circling back. I think it's interesting for you that the when and after you die are so intertwined, uh, because I think it makes it, Highlights how nebulous the idea is for you, where you really kind of juxt- where those the two are almost synonymous when they yep. are very discrete things um, I think this idea of compassion and going forward um, like creating a different wor- like creating a, a decent world for the future is uh an interesting one, and I want to know. Um, and this is an intentionally vague question. How how far in the future do you think? And how far in the future can you think?
1: Oh, what an that is an awesome question. Awesome question. Like it's a really cool question. So <laughs> I think that here's my there therein lies one of my biggest issues. So <laughs> my my current thinking a lot of times i feel like i go i start a monday mm-hmm. and everything that happens outside of monday doesn't exist mm-hmm. and it's not that i'm exceptionally good at living in the present it's more <laughs> so that i'm bad at thinking of what else is happening like at the macro scale right Mm -hmm. And so it tends to end up being stressful for reasons that it doesn't need to be. And if I can step back and if I can get away from it for a bit, I can start to put pieces together and say, why are you behaving this way? Here's like a healthier way to evaluate that kind
3: of thing. So,
1: how far in the future do I think? I think generally it ends up being a maximum of a few years. Mm-hmm. And it's things that are associated to landmarks. So things that I don't think about either for deliberate reasons or that I have conditioned myself to just start thinking that way. Is like, I don't think about things like my parents' death. So, realistically, there's another, there's another Wait But Why article that documents, if you think about your life in, in landmarks, mm-hmm. how long do you really have left to live? And so, the, the author, I think, is something in his 30s at the time of writing. And so, he starts to look at things like, if you eat one pizza... Every month, <laughs> you're only eating 12 pizzas a year, and you might only have 60 years left to live. So, you're only eating like, six, 700 more pizzas. Mm-hmm. Right. Which, maybe today, if you had 600 pizzas at the same time, that would seem like a lot of pizzas. But if you think about like entirety for you, like forever for you, you're only going to have that many more pizzas. And you could think about that in books. If you only read, A book every other week, then double the quantity of pizzas to books, right? And so you know that you're going to read somewhere between 1,200 and 1,400 books. There's a lot of books out there. And that means that you are only ever going to be able to read a very, very small subset of all of the total literature. So then, how are you going to take this information? Are you going to start changing what you do day to day? The Mm -hmm. one that really struck me and the reason why I remember this article is because part of this um, documented how much of your time that you're going to be able to spend with your parents, assuming you're lucky enough to have parents that live until they're 90 and that you live until you're 90, right? Mm -hmm. That you spend something like, and I'm, I'm gonna butcher the stats here right now so bear with me but it's something like um, 85% of all the time that you're ever going to have spent with your parents you've already spent with them by the time you move out for college Mm -hmm. and like that is sad to think about but you can also then use that as a way to reevaluate the way that you're spending your time and that's part of the reason why I want to not move too far away from home because you can start to impact that if you know that you're going to be able to go home more often like that kind of thing Mm -hmm. so all. All of this comes back to me to say like living in landmarks and how far away can you think? Um, Landmarks to me are big things like buying a house, getting married, uh, retiring, that kind of stuff. Retiring is like if I was extraordinarily fortunate, 55 or 60 years old. So like Mm -hmm. that's what, 30 years away from now? I don't typically think there. So how far out can I think? Um, maybe out to like my 60s or 70s, um, just as far as like things like going back to the values conversation, what is my physical body going to look like when I'm 80 years old? Mm-hmm. Will I be alive at 80 years old? That kind of thing. But a lot of what I'm thinking is as far as like, I can't imagine what life is going to be like then. I can't imagine will we have hit a singularity by then? <laughs> like, will we have all figured out that we're living in a simulation? <laughs> like Things like that. So, uh, yeah, to your, to your question, generally speaking, I'm really super shitty about thinking about anything other than what is immediately in front of me. And immediately in front of me tends to be a range of like one to
3: ten days.
1: And then... And what I'm capable of thinking of are only generally landmarks. So Mm -hmm. big life events that I have some rough thinking around that I think are going to be like in the one to 10 year mark. And then more like a big void of 10 to 50 year mark Mm -hmm. that you're just like, okay, here's some spots of things that might happen within there, but you haven't really given it much thought.
0: Mm -hmm. And I think it's very interesting that, you know, within that 10 to 50 year mark, that only takes us to 2065 or 2068, like that ballpark. And then, um, like under, like also recognizing that so far, everything that you mentioned is only within your lifespan, not beyond it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so it's just very, very interesting things to think about. Um, so we've so, been, tra- well, yeah, well, what's going
1: on? Oh, no, I was just going to say, like, thinking back to, um, I often think about, like, AI Mm -hmm. and the development of that and, and will people be useful. I personally believe that technology is going to get better at a, like, we're either going to get better at a rate fast enough that this starts to eclipse humanity very soon after our death like mm-hmm. 2065 i think so let's say i live till 2075 right like until 90 then i don't know that there's a ton of time before we have of like aware ai that either helps us immediately live for like another 100 years because it started to crack all of these codes for us mm-hmm. or that helps us to or that just like wipes us off the Face the planet because we're we're scum Mm -hmm. and like i do think that one of those things has to happen at some point right and so like that i think goes back to setting the future up for can we can i have like my grandkids or whatever set up so that whatever is going to happen in there they have some kind of training that they are equipped to either work with robots or like there's obviously a number of situations that occur in which you have no power of that like nothing i do in my life depending on what that situation looks like may help them in the least Mm -hmm. knowing that this could be so much more than what i am currently capable of even creatively imagining so Mm -hmm. thinking about that part but no yeah generally speaking like the the only events that i can See, are those that happen within my own lifespan. Mm.
0: And I think it's very interesting that you point that out about um, your children will likely live in a world, like our children will likely live in a world that is vastly different than anything we can imagine. Uh, Cause this is something that I, took note of, uh, but didn't comment on earlier when you said that you want your children's life to, or their upbringing to be easier or just as good as yours, uh, when they will be growing up in a world that is completely so, different.
1: So different.
0: Yes. Like I even think about, um,
1: are you on social media much? Unfortunately, like yes. <laughs> Instagram or... Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, me too. Right. And the, the unfortunate part, um, <laughs> Do you ever think about how, like, there's 13-year-old kids and probably kids much younger than that that basically speak in a language that you and I, like, would probably have a hard time understanding some of the stuff that they're talking about? Yeah. Like, like social media land language. Like, every so often something comes up when I'm just, what in the hell does that even mean? And I see it and I have some exposure to it because I'm a lurker on social media. But <laughs> I don't actually know what they're going through.
0: Mm-hmm. And then
1: we start to think about like the technology that they've had available to them versus the tech- technology that we had available until like, you know, we get to see the advent of things like iPhones. And you and I can probably both remember a time where if you accidentally hit the internet button on your phone, you waited for like 15 minutes as your phone left. Like crumbled into pieces in front of your <laughs> like mm-hmm. all of that kind of stuff. Whereas we don't really understand what that looks like even anymore because it's just going to be so, so, so different than kids that are growing up with this today. And then this is only going to speed up. This mm-hmm. is only going to get much, much, much faster in development. Mm-hmm. I just struggle to think that I'm creative enough to understand for a second what that world is going
0: to look like. Mm. I think that Ooh. is uh, at least you're self aware that, that you are almost completely unprepared for the future. <laughs> there's, there's no chance.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you ever watch a movie? And I, I watched Ready recently. Mm-hmm. Ready Player One. And have you seen that one? Yes. Ready Player One. Mm-hmm. Um, so. I think that it took place in like 2060 or something like that mm-hmm. and we were just like oh there's no way that the world could look like that in 40 years time right I think it's unlikely that it does mm-hmm. but I don't think that if there's no way I think that there are events that could happen that could lead us down into a world of something like that and i think that like ai technology is going to start getting much much better into the point where you've heard the whole are we living in a simulation debate mm-hmm. like there's a great chance that we're not in base reality and if you want to be a numbers person like i this is beyond me to even start to bridge the subject not smart enough to talk about it (laughs) but i do believe that there's a near zero chance that we are even in base reality so you know 2060 just one doesn't seem that far away and two it's entirely
0: possible that it's a world that you and i don't understand Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and um imagining how to prepare my child for that future is uh, one that kind of always, I'm like, I I need to learn so much because there's so much I don't know. And there's so much that nobody knows about what's going to be coming. Well, one of the things that I respect
1: about you is that you don't ever stop learning. Like, generally speaking, when you and I get together, there is something new that you have (laughs) been investigating and you like to share it with us. And it's just like, oh man, we're all shitty because we have just like been living our lives. And then that's one of the things that I have started to realize, like it pains me to think that I live my life in these one to 10 day blocks, knowing that you come up for air for maybe a little while on the weekend. And then you just like shut everything off around you again. Don't speak to any of your friends any of your family for that five day period. Cause all you can see is what immediately in front of you right like Mm -hmm. as opposed to it felt really good this morning to get on Khan Academy and start learning something new Mm -hmm. and I don't know that you guys are going to have any interest in me sharing what I learned from Khan Academy on stats and probability but (laughs) it's like all right let's start to learn new stuff that might be relevant in the future and like the way that I think about that specifically is um, there's a growing need for data analysts so Mm -hmm. maybe you start to learn skills that are going to help you with that. And then when you want to be able to figure out like, okay, if my dad is in sales and he was able to do well for himself and I'm able to find a new opportunity and originally like my respect for him turned translated into this want to go into sales and then realizing that maybe it's really not for me, like okay. all of that kind of thing, all of a sudden now Maybe there's an avenue where your kid finds, oh, my dad was a data scientist, and you know he was able to do well for himself, and maybe I want to do data science for a little while, but then I realized like I need to go into AI because that 's where the fields are going to be like. There should be some kind of baseline skills that help them succeed in the world, mm-hmm. even if it 's a world that we don't understand
0: exactly yeah and uh, yeah it's it's very interesting like w- I, I, I have a repeated argument, not argument, discussion with McKenzie about the value of um, standardized schooling and what pre- future does that prepare them for. Uh, and the, usually the utility for me is definitely in, within the socialization and being able to relate to peers of their same age. And that's incredibly important. But I think really for a generation that is going to come of age in the 2040s, I think that's the only value of school at this point is that they socialize with uh, within these very specific age groups. Yeah, I think that that,
1: I would agree with you that it is so, socialization. Did you do daycare or anything like that? When you were I think so. Yeah, I did some sort of like preschool. So I did preschool um, and then there were kids that, they would do like the after school programs and stuff like that. And I would always feel like they were really close together. Like mm-hmm. you know, they spent all of this additional time outside of school together. And I think that there's a ton of value in that. Like I don't think that that is a uh, flaw in parenting. I think that that is. Is a design aspect and maybe it was something where parents just generally couldn't get to pick up their kids or anything like that so they had to do after school programs Mm -hmm. but i really do feel like there was a ton of value there for kids developmentally Mm -hmm. i also learned cursive in third grade (laughs) and i can't tell you the last time i read that so it's like there's gonna be skills that you don't pick up Mm -hmm. I think there's probably like versions of standardized schooling even more like Montessori schools that might be a healthy mix of the two of them.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I get the I get the argument against cursive, but I also see there's a mental flexibility required to learn and read cursive that's sort of analogous to why uh, pre-medical students have to learn calculus or um, uh, not calculus, uh, uh, organic chemistry in order to get into medical school and it's because it is a very different way about thinking about chemistry than the standard uh, like, uh, uh, you know, equilibrium equations. Makes sense. I've also heard it's one of the hardest classes. So <laughs> it's, it's probably not, frustrating that you're just like. <laughs> yeah. It's not fun. You're really learning a different language. Um, yeah, I think uh, setting up ways for them to learn organic chemistry. So not that they're learning organic chemistry for the sake of that, but for the sake of being able to think very differently and be flexible mentally. Yeah, that makes sense. So we have been talking for almost two hours, um, and about all sorts of really great stuff. And I want to thank you for your time. Cause I know that, uh, you got stuff to do before and after this. Um, but I wanted to, uh, and also I'm, I was really glad cause this, you're the first, like a college buddy that i've interviewed and i was like oh this is this is gonna be fun and it has turned out to be quite quite fun
1: i was actually thinking about that too i I wasn't sure if you had interviewed anyone else um i this is i'm kind of jealous in a way because i feel like you're going to hear all of these really awesome stories firsthand and you have a little bit of a say in guiding them to where you want to go but i I know that you want to also like let us run free with where our minds will take us but i i think it's cool that you're doing this because we'll have a log two of imagining a bunch of different versions of this where
0: mm-hmm. you get to know things about people that you've known for a while that you really didn't know any of that information mm-hmm. yeah it's a it's always a very interesting experience just to hear like through the lens of the four prompts, like what is a person that I know, um, but how who are they through these four prompts is also, also very interesting. So thank you very much. Well, thank you for having me, Jen. You're welcome. And I want to give you the floor, the last few minutes, last few moments to address the audience directly, whether it is you in 2068 or whether it's uh, your future children, maybe after your passing or just somebody that knows you and likes you a lot and thinks that this has been a really fun ride of uh, the conversation, uh, the floor is yours. Oh, wow, that, that's, that's a lot of pressure. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, I wasn't expecting <laughs> some of the prompts.
1: <laughs> no, this, um, I, I think that me, just to anyone else out there, is uh, something that was immediately apparent in thinking through the third prompt of when I die, want is I haven't been thinking about my own mortality. And I joke with people often actually about um, you know, little trip to the ER or like some kind of medical thing that comes up. And I'm just like, oh no, it's okay, I'm just getting older. But that just getting older isn't gonna stop. And that is eventually becoming going to become okay. Either you're sick or you have just a limited expiration date on you. And so it is a good thought exercise to go through. I'm grateful that you are taking me down that. I, um, I wish for my future self that I get further away from the treadmill effect that wanting what you can't have and more on to establishing a, some kind of legacy and doing something good outside of here. And that's the the benchmark. More so than a six-month benchmark, that's like a a 10-year benchmark. How did you do accomplishing any of that?
0: Mm -hmm. Good stuff, Foley. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you, Eugene.
0: This has been John Foley on deck.